Reading now from Proverbs 31. A capable wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from far away. She rises while it is still night and provides food for her household and tasks for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid for her household when it snows, for all her household are clothed in crimson. She makes herself coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the city gates, taking his seat among the elders in the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies the merchant with sashes. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her happy. Her husband, too, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her a share in the fruit of her hands. And let her works praise her in the city gates. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As celebratory as this long poem is, I've never had a couple request that we read it at their wedding. I don't know if it's the opening, a capable wife who can find, or if it's the lengthy, somewhat oppressive list of attributes about this hard-to-find woman. I don't know what it is that prevents couples from asking it that it be read at their wedding, but it isn't read. Despite the long, somewhat oppressive list of attributes, we can't help admire someone who actually is this well-rounded and successful and capable. It's why people do request that it be read at their mother's funerals. Their mothers may not have fulfilled each line in this literally, but in general the children can see in their mother someone who supported her husband, who provided for her family, who was industrious and generous and wise and revered and kind and happy, the kind of woman who can bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan. I don't know if the writer of Proverbs meant for this long list of attributes to be oppressive, to be so exceptional that people give up trying. I'm guessing instead that the point is to inspire, to tell us, women and men, to be ambitious in our attempts to be faithful, to to aim high in caring for our spouse and children and community, to aim high in our devotion to God. Devotion to God is the pinnacle of this long list. 
for all the credit that is given to this woman for her good, hard work, for her great skill. It is her faith that is the greatest asset she has, far more valued than her charm or her beauty. Charm is deceitful, we're told. And beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Perhaps it's that line that prevents this from being read at a wedding. Thankfully, grooms never tell me, you know, she doesn't have any charm or beauty, but she does fear the Lord, and she sure can cook. (laughs) I'm glad of that. I am. I, I also hope that grooms do realize that charm can be misleading and that beauty evolves over time, but that the fear of the Lord is an attribute to be sought in one's spouse. Look, I don't want any groom to think his wife is without charm or beauty. But I also don't want him thinking that's all she is. I sure don't want that to be all she is. Proverbs has another reminder for us. Pay attention. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without good sense. Catch that? Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without good sense. When you're 17 and accustomed to judging beauty based on photographs, you couldn't care less about her sense. I get that. I, I was 17. For several years, I was 17. <laughs> but we're not supposed to stay 17. I'm glad that Sally is the same beautiful young woman, isn't the same beautiful young woman I married 16 years ago. What a shame if she hadn't evolved into the beautiful young enough woman that she is today. I'd be a fool if I thought she should be exactly who she was when we married. It'd be unfortunate if she hadn't changed, if I hadn't changed, if we hadn't evolved in those 16 years. The woman in Proverbs 31 did not start out doing everything in this list perfectly and simply continue doing it robotically over the course of her life. She evolved. And part of that evolution, I pray part of each of our evolutions, of our continued growth, is that all the things she did were integrated with her faith. That's what's celebrated about this capable wife. That her faith affected all she did and and, and how she did it. And let's be clear, hers is not an example just for wives or even just for women. Her model of integrated faith is a model for everyone who claims faith. It's why this passage, in fact, would be good for weddings, as it is for funerals, as it is for United Methodist Women's Sunday. It'd be good for United Methodist men meeting. Whether you will ever hold the spindle, clothe your family in crimson, or sell sashes to merchants, 
The point is not your ability with cloth. It's how you weave together what you believe with how you live. So how do you live? A few years ago, there was a group from Central who went down to Mepkin Abbey outside of Monk's Corner. We spent the weekend at that monastery on retreat, and we were impressed with the natural beauty down there and with the sort of holy peace of that place. We surprised ourselves by actually appreciating the 3 a.m. wake-up call for the first worship service each day. There were seven worship services on those days. Every day they have seven because their day is formed around contemplation and, and worship and service rather than trying to squeeze contemplation and worship and service into an already formed day. From lunch on, the monks practice silence as a way to try to deeper, more deeply contemplate the Spirit. During our stay, the preacher who preached for the few services that had sermons while we were there was a chaplain, a college chaplain, who had come to visit for a month. The chaplain took those monks to task. Our group had, had been in awe of, of the monks. We thought about what it meant, what they had given up to be in this sequestered Life. There's some rule that they couldn't leave the property, the grounds of the monastery, for the first nine years that they were there. We thought about their sacrifice. In came this chaplain. He said to them, you know, you've got it pretty good here. Yes, you've given up some worldly luxury, and yes, you work pretty hard while you're here, but you've also left a lot of temptation behind. He said, you might judge those of us who live off of these grounds for our lack of devotion, but we don't have lives that allow us to take seven worship breaks every day. We have to find our worship in our working, in our doing, in our everyday lives. Now, I don't know what the monks took from his sermon. They didn't have a lot to say. But what I heard, what I heard, is that we, you and I, those of us outside of that monastery, we have to find our worship and our working and our doing in our everyday lives. That's not to dispute our need for set-aside times for prayer and study and reflection, but it is to say that hemming pants and walking a dog and coloring with a grandchild and discussing job performance with a staff member, delivering a good that your company has promised to deliver, going to, to take someone's blood pressure those can all be times of, of worship and devotion. Giving pedicures, I'm told, can be a time of worship and devotion. Just this week, a, a woman told me that 
that she enjoys giving pedicures. I think she could tell I was a bit surprised by that because she quickly added, you know, it may sound silly, but when I'm giving a pedicure, I think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And I feel like it's a way that I can follow his example. That's not silly. She gets it. That's what Proverbs 31 is is celebrating. That's what the chaplain was honoring about those who are living outside of a sequestered life. That's what we call an integrated life. In the midst of doing something that some would find menial or unappealing, something that some may think of as completely secular, unsacred, this woman realizes, hey, giving a pedicure can be an expression of my faith. The vast majority of what is celebrated in Proverbs 31, in this woman, the reasons for her husband's praise, the reasons we continue to reflect on her all these many years later, are because the everyday tasks, the getting through life tasks, that she faithfully performs. On and on, Proverbs goes on and on. Proverbs goes about what she does from before daybreak until after night. How she does not eat the bread of idleness, how she cares for her household and her community, including the poor among them. On and on, her her husband praises her for her work, her her children praise her for her work, the community leaders praise her for her work. Because her work is an expression of her faith. The work she does is the living out of what she believes. God is everywhere. So God can be served everywhere. At the spa, in the kitchen, in the office, in the classroom, at the factory, on the sales floor. For people of faith, there's no sacred and secular split. What we believe is to impact what we do and how we do it. At all times, in all places. Because that's an integrated life. That's a life worth celebrating whenever it's observed.